And Jacob arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the brook of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over all that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And he crossed over Penwell. The sun, as he crossed over Penwell, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Now let all of God's people say, Amen. 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 Let's pray together as we come to this great passage of God's Word. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for the privilege again of gathering together and worshiping You. And we pray now that as we come to Your Word that You would give us help, Father. We know that this is Your Word, that this is not the Word that any mere mortal wrote, that these are the words that You gave to the prophets, that You gave to the apostles in order to preserve for us that these are the very words of God, breathed out by You, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Father, living and active, infallible and inerrant, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate into our hearts and lives and expose everything within us and continue, Father, the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. And so it's for all of that that we, that we pray this morning. Holy Spirit, would you be with us and illuminate the meaning of your words to us today? And would you impress upon our hearts the truthfulness of these words? And would you continue to transform us by them and make us to be more and more holy and glorifying to God? And so, Father, we pray, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's been my plan for the past two weeks to continue on together in our ongoing study of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament Scriptures. And that's a, that's a study, if you've been a part of the church for a while, that we've been engaged in for a while now. And whenever we finish one of those Old Testament books of prophecy, we spend some time together in some other Scriptures as sort of an interlude, often in the New Testament, before coming back to the Minor Prophets. And that's what I thought we were going to do today. And the next in line of the Minor Prophets is the great book of Jonah. And as I was reading and studying in order to preach the first portion of the book of Jonah this week, it occurred to me how much the story of Jonah connects to the two passages that we have 
looked at together the past two weeks in Isaiah chapter 50 and in Matthew chapter 6, both of which, of course, are massively encouraging passages of Scripture in terms of our ability to trust God. Isn't that what we've been learning together and meditating on together? How to trust God, especially in the hard seasons of providence in our lives, right? In Isaiah, we learned how how faithful God is, how dependable God is, how good God is, no matter what, right? In and of Himself, irrespective of anything about us, independent of anything in us or the circumstances of our lives, God is faithful and we can trust Him. And in God's great faithfulness and mercy and love, He sovereignly ordains all of the things in our lives. And so whether they're difficult or whether they're pleasant, we can and we must trust Him because of who He is and all that He has done to love us since before the foundations of the world, let alone since before we ever came on the scene. And then in Matthew chapter 6, remember last week, we reminded ourselves again of those great words of our Lord Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where He teaches us not to be anxious about the things of our lives because our God is sovereign and our God is faithful and our God is good and He supplies every need in this world because He's the one who cares intimately for every single aspect of this world. Not just us, but all of the little birds that fly around in the air and every single flower that grows on the ground and every single blade of grass, He says even, is a blade of grass that He cares about, that He clothes, that He provides for. How much more will He care for us who have been made in His image? We can trust Him. We don't need to be anxious and strive after the things of this world. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What's going to happen tomorrow? What am I going to do? God's got it. If we will seek first His kingdom and righteousness, He will add all of these things to us. And He always does because He's a good and faithful Father. And we can trust Him. We can walk by faith and not by sight. And if that's been our emphasis these past two weeks, right? How how certainly and how surely, how absolutely we can trust our loving and faithful God, then just think about the book that we were going to be heading straight into, the book of Jonah, where the prophet of God struggled pretty profoundly, didn't he? (laughs) In order to trust God. And to be devoted to God's will, to be devoted to God's kingdom, and devoted to God's righteousness, Jonah wrestled with trusting God, didn't he? And he tried his best, in fact, to flee from the presence of God, and from God's will, and from the priorities of God's eternal kingdom. He, he ran away, and now that didn't work out so good for Jonah. You don't run away from the living God. And we're going to see all of that as we jump into that book, Lord willing, next week. But it occurred to me this week that in between those two passages that we looked at in Isaiah and Matthew and and the book of Jonah, where we're heading, this story of Jacob in Genesis fits so well as as a great segue as we continue all to learn to trust our God and walk by faith and as we all have to admit that as his people redeemed and reconciled very often still 
we don't trust Him. Very often still, like Jacob, we tend to wrestle with Him. To strive with Him. And that sometimes, even like Jonah, we, we, we find ourselves trying to flee from His will in our lives. I'm not doing that, God. I'm not going there, God. And still, as we're going to see today, and as we'll really see when we get into Jonah's story in the coming weeks, still, even in spite of the unfaithfulness that remains in us, even in spite of our striving with God and resisting sometimes and and even fleeing sometimes from His will, still He remains faithful to us, patient with us, kind to us, and accomplishes all kinds of, of unfathomably gracious and glorious things in the world, in our lives, and and in His kingdom and for His glory. And so this morning, I want to walk with you through the story of Jacob's life so that we can glean from it a lot of things that God would reveal to us here, not just about Jacob, but about ourselves, and about Himself, and about Jesus Christ, as we'll see, and about His gospel love for us, and about our living faithfully under that gospel for His kingdom and and for His glory. So, most of you know this story. This is familiar territory, I trust, to, to many of you, but we'll just rehearse it because repetition is good for us and being reminded is very, very helpful to us because whether it's intellectually or in other ways, we're awfully forgetful, aren't we? If you're like me, you are. So let's go through Jacob's story together. It really begins, obviously, with his grandfather Abraham. Abraham was another man whose whose name was changed by God, as we see Jacob's name changed here in Genesis 32. Abraham's name was changed for a, a very significant, a very important reason. Abraham was a descendant of Noah's son Shem. And Abraham's father's name was Terah, and Abraham was born in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is an ancient city in the area that we know as modern-day Iraq, far off to the east of the land that would become the land of Israel. And the name that he was given at birth by his mother, by his father, was the name Abram. Not Abraham yet, but Abram, which means mighty father. Or exalted father. And like in most cultures, fathers, see, were, were honored and held in high regard and esteemed. And so to name your son something that meant mighty father was, was to bestow upon the child a very honorable and prestigious heritage. And so this was a pretty common name actually, Abram that parents gave to their boys in in that time and in that place, hoping and expecting that they would grow up and become great fathers themselves. And when he grew up to be a man, Abram took for himself a, a wife named Sarai, hoping to become a father and to raise children with her and to live up to this noble name, Mighty Father. But as it turned out in God's providence, his dear wife, Sarai, was was barren. She couldn't conceive children. Now, 
Abram and Sarai didn't know God when they grew up in the land of Ur. The people in that place worshipped false gods. It was a pagan land. But one day, after Abram and Sarai had, had moved with his family to a place called Haran, God, the God of heaven, spoke to Abram and told him to pick up and leave and go to this place called Canaan, where he'd never been. God said to him, if you'll go there, then to your offspring I will give this land. And Abraham was, or Abram at this time, he was at this point 75 years old. And he didn't have any children, he didn't have any offspring, and his wife was barren. But God said, go somewhere that you've never been, and I will give that land to your offspring. Well, I don't have, okay God, what offspring? But he trusted God. And he went, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And later in Genesis chapter 17, God made a very, very specific promise to Abram to give him offspring, to multiply his offspring greatly, massively, so that Abraham would, would become the father not just of a child, but of a, a multitude of children, and in fact, a multitude of nations. And when God said that, He told Abram, I'm going to change your name. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. Right? Abram, remember, means mighty father. Abraham means God added a few letters, and it means now father of many. Father of a multitude. I mean, that's an awesome promise that God made. And at that point in his life, Abram was... Abraham was 99 years old now. Hebrews says at that point in his life, he was so old that he was as good as dead. <laughs> and God was promising a multitude of offspring to him and to his barren wife. Now, he wasn't sure how that was going to happen, how this promise was going to be fulfilled. He was old. She was old. She's been barren all his life. But, but God was absolutely specific. He changed Sarai's name too to Sarah which means princess in Hebrew, which would be the language the people who would come from her would speak. And God said, I will bless her. And Abram, I will give you a son by her. I, not just I'll give you and her a son, but I will give you a son by this princess that you are married to. And at that point, their faith wobbled a little bit, didn't it? Remember, when God says, I'm going to give you a son by her, he fell down on his face, but it wasn't in wonder, and it wasn't in awe. Wow, God, this is amazing. He actually was laughing. He's like, really, God? Sarah was 90 years old at this point, had never conceived a child once in her whole life, so Abraham literally cracked up when God said, she's going to bear you a son. Because now, see, Abram has walked by faith and gone to Canaan, but now in this moment, experience and circumstance are outweighing faith in the heart of Abraham. And that sounds familiar, right? Anybody ever experienced that? How often do we assume that we know better than God? 
How often is it easy for us to impulsively and reflexively assume that doing things His way isn't going to stand a chance of getting what we need out of life, so we presume to take matters into our own hands and devise what we think is a better plan and do things our way. Abraham and Sarah believed, right? Because they really, really, really wanted to believe that God's promise of a child, a son, would come true, but they couldn't believe that it was going to come true through Sarah as God had promised. So, so they took matters into their own hands. And Abraham tried to conceive a child with Hagar, who was Sarah's much younger Egyptian female servant. If we're going to have a child, it's going to have to be this way instead of God's way. See, how'd that go for them? Well, they had a child, but it wasn't the child of promise because it wasn't the child that came from doing things God's way and trusting God. So, so that child, Ishmael, was not the conduit of God's blessing that he had promised to Abraham and Sarah. And boy, look at the news today, the fallout of not trusting God has absolutely persisted and plagued this world ever since, hasn't it? The animosity between Isaac and Ishmael persists today. So look, the first little point is we must never ever assume that we'll realize God's blessing in our lives if we insist on doing things our way and laugh at His way as if there's no possible way we can trust Him. Against all odds, contrary to all our expectations and experience and circumstance, we have to trust Him more than we trust ourselves. But, they didn't do that, but how merciful, right? And patient God was anyway with Abraham and Sarah. He kept His promise to them anyway, in spite of their disbelief and unfaithfulness and self-willed arrogance and laughter. And so Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Isaac, you know, in Hebrew means laughter. Because they literally laughed when God promised him to them. And so now God's going, who's laughing now? Look, I'm faithful. I can do what I say. Just trust me. And Abraham's promised son Isaac, of course, as the story goes on in the book of Genesis, when he was 40 years old, Isaac married Rebekah. And together they became the parents of Jacob and his twin brother Esau. They, they were twins in the womb. Genesis 25 and verse 24 says, And in the womb... They were fighting with each other from the get-go. The text of God's Word says, right? So much that, that Rebecca asked God, why is this happening to me? Well, she's pregnant. They're fighting so much and wrestling and squabbling so much that she's going, God, what, what is happening? And God answered. He said, here's what's going on. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be Divided, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So those boys, Jacob and Esau, and their offspring would always know struggle, would always know strife and division and contention 
God said, and we saw in the book of Obadiah how that played itself out historically, didn't we? So Esau was the older, he was the one who was born first, and at least physically, he was the stronger one, right? He came out of the womb literally covered in, in hair. He was burly and he was hairy. <laughs> his, it says in the text, his body was covered in red hair like a thick cloak as a, as a baby. And that hairiness was the basis of his name, Esau. And then his little brother Jacob wasn't far behind. Literally, he was holding on to Esau's ankle, his heel, as as he came out of the womb. So they named him Jacob because that's what that word means. It literally means heel grabber. <laughs> not, not just in the sense of the physical action of holding on to his brother's foot. It was, it was actually a figure of speech that was common in those days for the idea of, 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 of trying to undermine somebody, trying to hold somebody back in order to get ahead of them. And that's the story of, of Jacob's relationship to Esau, isn't it? The older shall serve the younger. And so later in life, that's exactly what happened. This is, this is what Jacob did to his older brother, Esau, the older one, the stronger one, the more active one, the more aggressive one, took up a life of, 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 of heading off out into the wilderness all on his own and, and hunting for a living. Meanwhile, Jacob, right, was the, the quiet, meek, gentle soul like his father who preferred to stay closer at home and work as a shepherd. And one fateful day, as the story goes, as you know, Jacob showed the flesh and the selfishness and the pride and the sin of his own heart as he became very cunning towards his brother. And with some help from his mom, Jacob schemed to trick Isaac, his father, into transferring the birthright from Esau, the firstborn, to himself. The birthright was the, the privileged status or, or rank in the family that the firstborn son was always given that gave that son a double portion of the inheritance and, and various privileges in the family, including taking the place of the father when he died as the head of the family. And Jacob tricked his father into giving that blessing to him instead of to Esau. And so Jacob, the weaker one, ended up in the higher position than his brother. And the older, as God had prophesied, ended up serving the younger. And as soon as Esau figured out what had happened, he cried out and he said, he's rightly named Jacob. Because Jacob had grabbed him by the heel from the beginning and, and, and had pulled him down in order to get ahead. He cheated his brother by deceiving his own father. And in, in, in Genesis Chapter 27, it says that, that Esau hated his brother for this. Powerful indignation and resentment dwelt in Esau's heart. And so Rebekah was afraid for Jacob's life. And she knew that if Esau got his hands on Jacob, he would, he would rip the younger, weaker boy to pieces. And so Rebekah sent Jacob away to his uncle Laban's land back in Haran. So, I mean, this person here, Jacob, in the Old Testament, he's not exactly the kind of person that we would expect to be the hero of anyone's story, right? 
He's not exactly the big, upstanding, strong, handsome, sterling, leading man that we would cast if we were writing this story or that we'd want to emulate and find inspiration for in our own lives. This isn't like dare to be a Jacob here, right? For so many reasons though, see? For so many reasons, that's what makes Jacob's story such an awesome story. Because ultimately, he's not the leading man. He's not the main character. He's not the ultimate awesome protagonist. He's not the hero. God is. God is. In spite of Jacob. And the message of the story and the moral of the tale is how awesome God was anyways. And how utterly dependent on God Jacob became. And that's what we want to be like. And that's what his name ought to mean to us. And that's what God changes His name to. It's all about what God does in spite of Jacob's failures that make this such a powerful story. Just like the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? They didn't know God. They didn't worship God. They worshiped false gods when God called them to move to Canaan. And when God made them a promise that they didn't deserve, they laughed. But God blessed them anyway by fulfilling that promise anyway, even when they doubted Him. Even when instead of trusting Him, they took matters into their own hands and did things their own very, very sinful way. It's not about their heroism. It's about the great grace and power and sovereign purposes of our Almighty God. So was God in telling these stories, is He somehow justifying their sin, the sin of Abraham and Sarah in in conceiving Ishmael through Hagar, or the sin of Jacob in deceiving his brother and his father? Is God somehow saying it's okay to do these things because God blessed them when they did those things? Of course not. God's putting the gospel on display. He's being gracious. He's being merciful. He's not giving them what they deserve and He's giving them what they don't deserve because that's who God is. He was being God. He was giving blessing in spite of sin because He is love. And Him giving His love is not conditioned on our earning His love. And that's a big part of the core of all of these stories. So when Esau got mad and Rebekah sent Jacob away, he went and he fled back to Haran, 400 miles away where, where his uncle Laban was. And on his way, and this is Genesis chapter 28 now, Jacob came to a certain place and spent the night there And while he slept, he had a dream. And you remember this dream? He dreamt of a ladder that was set up on earth, reached all the way up into heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder and coming from heaven to earth. And it says that the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, right? The great I Am, God Himself, was standing above the ladder in heaven, and He said to Jacob, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. And then in this dream, God made a promise to Jacob 
to multiply his offspring and to give them all of the land around as an inheritance and through them to bless the whole earth. And this was to be the fulfillment of the original promise that he had made to Abraham back in Genesis 17. And when Jacob woke up, he said, this was no real ordinary dream. This, this was the Lord giving me this vision and speaking directly to me. Surely, he said, the Lord is in this place. So he built a, a pillar out of rocks there, a monument, and he called the place Bethel, Bethel, the, the place, the house of God, the place where God is. And then he went on to Haran, and when he got there, where his uncle Laban lived, there's another great story of how he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, wanted to marry her, but Uncle Laban was also a trickster. He, he told Jacob that Jacob would have to work for him for seven years in order to win Rachel's hand, so Jacob did. He worked seven years, and it felt like the blink of an eye because he was so smitten with Rachel and eager to marry her, and finally the wedding day came, and you remember when, when Jacob went to lift the veil, I guess the veils then were... Uh, uh, a lot less see-through than the veils are now. Um, but he went to lift the veil of his bride after saying, I do, in order to kiss the bride. And it wasn't Rachel, it was her sister Leah instead. And so Uncle Laban had tricked Jacob, right? What goes around comes around. The cunning deceiver had fallen into the same kind of trap that he had laid for his own brother years before. So now what do you do, right? Well, he worked another seven years for Laban so that he could marry Rachel too. And now he had two wives. Again, uh, taking matters into his own hands, doing things his own sinful way instead of trusting the Lord and his providence. Like one writer says, lifelong sorrow and disgrace and trials followed as a consequence of this double union, and it did. And Genesis chapter 30 tells us Jacob just kept on living up to his own name, the heel grabber, the usurper, as he worked for his uncle Laban all those years. He was tending Laban's sheep, his own sheep and his uncle's sheep, and he found this sneaky way that we still don't really fully understand of, of separating the stronger sheep from the weaker ones so that his own sheep, Jacob's sheep, would always somehow end up being the stronger ones, and Laban's sheep would always end up being the weaker ones, and so basically he was sneakily extorting Laban and ending up being able to sell his own much stronger sheep for a lot more money, and he became pretty wealthy in the process, while Laban and his sons didn't. And so again... <laughs> Again, Jacob's life, Jacob's story to this point, it's not exactly the epitome of faithfulness, of trusting God, of walking by faith, right? And at that point, Laban's sons get upset with Jacob now too. Because, think about it, he's gotten away with both of their sisters, <laughs> and he's pulled this trick with the sheep and ended up wealthier than them. So they're upset and they turn Laban against Jacob. And it says at the beginning of Genesis 31, sneaking up on our chapter now, it says that the Lord told Jacob to get out of there and go back home. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. I will be with you. 
Get out of there before they kill you and beat you to a pulp. Go back towards Esau and don't fear because I will be with more grace for Jacob, right? It's more mercy. Laban's mad. His sons are mad. He's gotten himself into this whole mess not trusting God and God still says, hey, I've got your back. There's the message of the story. I'm with you. What a gracious, patient, merciful, unceasingly faithful God we serve. So, look up with me at chapter 31 and look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 of chapter 31. God says, the Lord, right, Yahweh, the great I am, says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and I will be with you. And in verse 11, look at how Jacob tells his two wives about this encounter with the Lord. He says to them, the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And, and the Lord said, lift up your eyes and see all of the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. In verse 1, it was God, it was Yahweh who spoke to Jacob. But here Jacob says, and this is what I want you to notice, it was the angel of God. Is there a contradiction? Was it God speaking or was it the angel of God speaking? And this is a reality, see, that is, is revealed and, and that is unpacked, unfolded all throughout the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. It's the reality that there is only one God, of course, right? One God only and that this one God, very often even in the Old Testament, manifests His presence in this person who is identified as the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he's called the angel of God, like here. Sometimes he's just called the angel. Not an angel, but the angel. Sometimes he's called a man, which he is in chapter 32, because even though he's not a flesh and blood human, he, he sometimes appears as a man, even in the Old Testament. And there are several other ways that this person is identified. But what's clear about whoever this person is, is this, that on the one hand, he's identified as God. As Yahweh, as the great I Am, as the eternal only God. And at the same time, at other times, there is a distinction between Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. How, what? You tracking with me? You should be if you know the, the New Testament and are familiar at all with the doctrine of God that becomes very, very clear in the rest of our scriptures that God is one and God is three. So he, listen, it's said that, that Yahweh sends the angel of Yahweh. The Lord sends the angel of the Lord. It's said that the angel speaks for the Lord and that at the same time the angel is the Lord. So again, hopefully if we're, if we're all Christians, we see where this is going and it's, it's not actually confusing to us because 
Once we get into the New Testament, we become plenty familiar and perfectly comfortable with the person of Jesus, right? Who on the one hand says things like, no one knows the Son except the Father. He's, he's distinguishing between himself and the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. But then on the other hand, the same Jesus says, I and the Father are one, right? And we understand that in the one sense, Jesus distinguishes himself from the Heavenly Father, and in another sense, he identifies himself with the Heavenly Father. And we know that it's because in Jesus, as we read in the book of Colossians, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, right? He is not only the Son of God, He is God the Son. And so we understand that God is triune. There's one being who is God. There's not multiple gods. But this one being, God, eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They're not three different gods, they're one God, three persons. And so the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. Is it a mystery? Of course it is. He's the only being like this. There's nothing to compare Him with in the universe. There's no analogy of Him that suffices for us to fully understand the complexity of His nature. And if there was, He wouldn't be much of a God, would He? Because He'd be like creation in His very essence, and He's not. So see, but here's the point. In the Old Testament, this same reality is not new news in the New Testament. This is how God has been progressively revealing Himself all along, even throughout the Old Testament. One Yahweh, one Lord, one God revealed in multiple persons. Even the word He takes, the name He takes for Himself, Elohim, is, is plural. El is God, Elohim is plural, but not in terms of beings, but in terms of, of persons. And see, even Jewish rabbis before the time of Jesus understood this and realized that Yahweh who is in heaven is distinct from Yahweh who often appeared on earth and yet they are the same God. Because see, the, the Yahweh who appeared on earth so often is, is, and is called the angel of Yahweh is God the Son. The second person of the Trinity is Christ appearing and speaking before He became born in human flesh in the little town of Bethlehem. And He is all over the place in the Old Testament. Christ is the Son of God, is all over the place, already, already appearing and bringing promises and redemption into this world all throughout the Old Testament, walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, Appearing to Abraham, pouring out both judgment and redemption on Sodom and Gomorrah. Appearing during and after the Exodus, guiding the people through the wilderness. Appearing in the fiery furnace with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Appearing to the prophets, appearing to Jacob in Haran. It's not the first time he appeared to Jacob, right? 
Because he, the angel of God, who is God, says, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. So he appeared to him all the way back in, in chapter 28, where Jacob saw this dream of the ladder, where God himself, Yahweh himself, spoke to Jacob and made that great promise. And Jacob said, surely the Lord Yahweh is in this place. And he named the place Bethel, the place of God. So see, Jacob gets it. Jacob knows that this angel of the Lord is the Lord. In one sense, distinct, and in another sense, the same. And this angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, he's been appearing to Jacob all along, all throughout his life. In spite of Jacob's deceitfulness and craftiness and fleshliness and foolishness and sinfulness, God has been with him in the person of the angel, in the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he's been with Jacob all along. And God's involvement in Jacob's life now comes to this massive head here, see? In Genesis chapter 32. This is, this is the big turning point for Jacob's life and where his life takes on such profound meaning in Scripture. God's been with him all along, but Jacob has been, Jacob has been chafing at God all along, right? Jacob's, even though God's been with him, Jacob's been marching to the beat of his own drum and doing things his own way all along, like us, right? And that's caused no end of trouble for him. He's, he's been fleeing from his own brother, running for his life. Now he's got to run back the other way because his uncle and cousins are mad at him. Because he's always been doing stuff his own way, scheming and tricking and, and grasping in his own wisdom and in his own strength. And in that way, we're all like him. Just, just like his name indicates. But still God was with him. And so gracious to him. And now God says it's all about to change. So chapter 32, with all of that precursor, he's on the run from Uncle Laban and from his cousins. Laban catches up to him. And by God's providence, is gracious with him. That's good news. But suddenly Jacob realizes that coming from the other direction is, is his brother Esau. Now what? Verses 1 and 2 here of Genesis 32. Two angels come from heaven and meet him. And he knows that God sent them. He says, this is God's camp. So he sends some messengers to talk to Esau. Verse 5. Hoping to appease, placate Esau. And they come back and they say, well, we talked to him and he's got 400 men with him. That's not good. So verse 7 says he's afraid. Jacob's scared. He's distressed. His soul is troubled, right? He's feeling anxious. He's probably being anxious. So here's what he does. He divides up his servants and his livestock and, and he separates them all into two camps, hoping that if somebody's going to get attacked and destroyed that at least one of those camps, somebody's going to survive. And then he prays to God in verse 9, you told me you'd come back home. Or you told me to come back home and you, you told me you'd be with me. And I need you, right? And so verse 10, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to me. 
So, so now, see, God's brought him to this place where he's completely out of his depth. And he knows it. What do you do when you're out of your depth? Well, you just throw yourself on the mercy of the God who's always been there. Jacob's out of tricks now, right? He's got, he's got nothing left to save himself with. And in his desperation, finally, he cries out to God. Gathers up some of the best of his livestock to offer to Esau as a peace offering. Sends away his wives and his servants. And he stays there alone in order to face his brother. And what happens? His whole life becomes summed up in one single life-changing encounter with God. A man wrestled with him until daybreak, verse 24 says. And when the man didn't prevail, verse 25, he touched Jacob's hip socket and, and put it out of joint, dislocated it. But Jacob, being Jacob, said, verse 26, I'm still not letting go. I'm <laughs> not dead yet. <laughs> I want you to bless me. I mean, that seems like a little bit of a strange thing to say at this point, right? Unless you know who you're wrestling with, and Jacob did. See, this is, this is the one who changes your name when he changes your life. That's who Jacob's wrestling with. Just like he'd done for Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, so many years ago. So, the one he's wrestling with, verse 27, asks Jacob's name, and Jacob answers, and the man changes him forever. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel means he who wrestles with God, he who strives with, he who contends with God. God says here, you've wrestled with me. You didn't just wrestle with a man, you've wrestled with me. Because remember, he's wrestling with the angel who is Yahweh. He's wrestling with Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God. But God says, you've wrestled with me, Jacob, and you've, I'm going to change your name to Israel because not only have you wrestled with me, but you've prevailed. Did he prevail? How did he prevail? Against God. Didn't God prevail? God dislocated Jacob's hip. Didn't God win? With a single touch, left Jacob with a permanent limp, right? How did Jacob prevail? <laughs> because it was Jacob's defeat that was his victory. And there's the gospel. There's the story. There's the message. It was by weakening him that God made him strong. And that's when God changed his name. Israel means wrestler with God. He'd spent his whole life, right, wrestling with God, kicking against the goads of God's will and God's way, doing things his own way always until God so graciously broke his hip but didn't kill him, made him weak in order to make him strong in the strength of the Lord. And then Jacob asks, verse 29, now, now you tell me your name. But the man wouldn't. And really Jacob already knew who he was. Because again, this wasn't his first encounter with him. 
And so, verse 30, Jacob calls this place where this wrestling match happened, Peniel. This is a beautiful name. The word panim in Hebrew means the presence of or the face of. And the word El is the word for God. And you put them together and you get this place named Peniel. This is the place of the presence of God. This is the place where I stood in the face of God. Jacob knew who he was wrestling with. I have seen him face to face. The one he wrestled with appeared in the form of a man, even though he wasn't a flesh and blood human being. Not yet. Not until his incarnation, right, in Bethlehem. But he's the same one who Jacob had already encountered in Bethel. The angel of the Lord who is God. The second person of the Trinity. The God of Abraham. The one who was with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The one who was with us on the cross. And the one who said, I'll I'll always be with you. Even to the end of the age. Now this story ends so well, right? Jacob literally limps away from his encounter with God. That limp would affect him for the rest of his life. Jacob is forever changed. His name is forever changed. His life is forever changed. Weakened, but made strong. And when he goes now and encounters his brother Esau... By God's grace, Esau's rage has disappeared. And at this point, at least, they were reconciled together, brother to brother, by God. And much later in Jacob's life, all the way back down in in, in Genesis 35, the angel of the Lord comes again. The one who is the Lord appears to Jacob one more time. Tells him to go back to Bethel, where he'd had the dream where he'd met the angel of the Lord for the first time. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to live there. Right? Sort of bookending the the journey of Jacob's life in that place that's called the place of God. And Jacob says, He is the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. And He is my God. So finally, see... He understands the power and the presence and the goodness of God in a way that subdues his restless heart and transforms his life. And so he ceases striving because finally he knows his God. And that's the message. That's the meaning, right? Here's the point. Jacob started out in life like we all do. Jacob started out striving with God, but ended up clinging to God. He spent his whole life wrestling with Esau, with Laban, with his family. And ultimately, all along, he was wrestling with God until Peniel. Until he finally wins by losing. Until God gives him victory through defeat. Such a good story, right? Such a powerful story. Such a great precursor to the gospel, right? In the Old Testament. 
God came to an unworthy man and claimed that man as his own. God inserted himself in the person of the angel of the Lord into Jacob's life, all throughout Jacob's life, intervened in his life in order to become Jacob's God. To give him a purpose, to give him a future, to give him a promise, to bless him in a way that he didn't earn, that he didn't deserve. And again, Christians realize this. Again, this same person who appeared to Jacob all throughout and who wrestled with him there at Peniel and dislocated his hip and weakened him in order to strengthen him, that's the one who, who, who then later would come and, and take on human flesh and be born of a virgin in Bethlehem in order to give us new life. Remember Jacob saw the vision of the ladder? Genesis 28, angels ascending and descending between earth and heaven. Listen, in John chapter 1, Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, Jesus introduces himself to Nathaniel, one of the first followers of Christ. Calls Nathaniel by name, even though Nathaniel had never ever met him. And Nathaniel said, how do you know my name? How do you know me? And Jesus says, while you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Meaning, as God, Jesus omnisciently knew who Nathanael was. And Nathanael understood that Jesus was saying that he was God. And he said, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, yeah, that's true. And you're going to see even greater things than that. I'm going to blow your whole mind with an understanding of all of the Old Testament that you've never grasped before. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus said to Nathaniel, right? You hear that? Not only is Jesus God, the same God, the same Lord, the same Yahweh who spoke to Jacob during the dream, Jesus is the ladder that Jacob saw where heaven comes down to earth and where God brings us up to himself. Jesus is the one who, who brings the greatest promises and blessings of God to us and, and who brings us to God. He's the one who doesn't just dislocate our hip like he did to Jacob and leave us with a limp. Jesus is the one who comes down here and meets with us who have wrestled against God and strived against God all our lives. And Jesus crucifies us with himself and buries us in baptism and then raises us up to newness of life. The story of Jacob is such a great portent of the gospel wherein Jesus comes, the Son of God incarnate comes to weaken us, to defeat us, to put us to death in order to strengthen us and give us eternal victory and make us more than conquerors and give us everlasting life. That's the message. Now, there may be people here who have been wrestling with God all your lives and you've never yet surrendered to Jesus. You've never yet trusted Him for that newness of life and for everlasting salvation. 
And in your life, you're wondering why there seems to be this endless series of hardships and struggles and frustrations, and and you can't understand the meaning of, of all the things that are going on in your life. You don't know how to make sense of any of them like Jacob, right? You're always trying to find a way out of them by doing things your own way, and it's just not happening. Everywhere you turn, you seem to, seem to run into more hardship because what you ultimately need is for the Son of God to touch you, overcome you, defeat you in order to graciously give you victory. You need to surrender to Him. You need to let Him remake you. You need to let Him rename you and give you newness of life. And then there's some people, you've had your hip put out of joint, right? By the touch of the sovereign Son of God. You've been crucified, you've been raised, given new life, and you're still striving awfully hard. You're still wrestling a lot. You're still doing things in your own way and in your own wisdom and in your own strength, being stubborn still instead of yielding and trusting and saying, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Because you're proud. Because you want what you want. And because really when when God says, follow me and do this this way and seek my kingdom and my righteousness and count the cost and bear the cross and forsake yourself, you say, I don't think it's going to go as well for me if I do that as, as if I do things my own way. And you need to recognize that in the loving discipline of the Lord, He gives trials. He gives struggles. He gives hardships to all of us. He gives thorns in the flesh like Paul encountered in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in order to make us weak in ourselves so that He can make us strong in His strength and teach us to say, His grace is sufficient for me. It's all I need. I don't need pleasures in this world. I don't, need, I don't need any treasures in this world. I just need Him and I just need His grace. And His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And so, so, so I'll boast in my weakness like Paul says because when I'm weak, that's when I'm really strong. Which is what God taught Jacob. And, and He needs to teach us all to be still, to cease striving now. And to know He's our God. And He loves us. And he's working all things together for our good. And there's a lot of people who have learned that, not perfectly, but, but you've learned it and you're resting. Even in, the, even in the hard and dark and brutal seasons of life and when you encounter trials of various kinds, you're able to rest, you're able to rejoice and count it all joy. Because you know that the way of the Master is the way of the cross. You know, as he says in Acts, that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And you've learned that the hard way. That it's the hard discipline of our Heavenly Father which yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12. That builds our endurance and strengthens our character and increases our hope. Romans 5. And so it's well with your soul. Whatever your lot even when trials like sea billows roll. Well, look, whoever you are and wherever you are along your journey as a, as a human being who by nature strives with God, the message is the same. Trust Him. 
Trust Him. Yield to Him. Submit to Him. Be still and know that He is your God and that He is with you and that He never leaves you, that He never forsakes you and that everything that He does is good. That He's got your back and that you are in His presence. And know all you need and all you have ultimately is nothing in this world but is Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, your word is so powerful. And not only in the theological propositions that it declares to us and the prophetic statements that it announces to us, but Father, even in the recording of the history of your dealings with your people, what a revelation of your great grace and mercy and sovereign power and strength and holiness and justice and righteousness. And so we pray, Father, this morning that your word would penetrate our hearts and our lives and teach us to trust you and teach us to say that if we have Christ, we have everything and we need nothing else. And so we need not be anxious for anything in this world because Christ is all. And His love is all. And His promises and the inheritance that He has given us by faith is all. And so as we sing to Him now, would we sing with hearts of faith? And would we learn more and more to trust and live in a way that glorifies You and that is useful for Your kingdom? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Page 15.